And Father, we do anticipate that great day when we will be around the throne together in a chorus of voices, including the angels singing praises to you, speaking of your glory, speaking of the glory of the Son and of our redemption in Him, exalting and delighting in our salvation. And that is, of course, a worship that doesn't just begin on that day. It is amplified. It is more intense. It is the worship of your people now. And it is because we taste of that glory now that we anticipate the fuller expression and experience of it then. And so we pray that even as we hear you speak to us, it would be with the submissive hearts of worship, longing to hear you, our King, teach and instruct us. And so we pray that would be the heart at which we hear. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see the majesty of our great King. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what? I'm going to just turn this off. Let's go to this mic because that's not going to stop. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be looking this morning, begin our look this morning at verses 31 through 46. Verses 31 through 46. And we're coming now to the final teaching of Jesus in Matthew regarding his return. It's a teaching that Matthew has recorded for us from the lips of Jesus That he began actually back in chapter 24. Now we come to the end of it. If you'll remember this teaching of Jesus is in response to the disciples question in verse 23 of chapter 24. He says, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus now brings everything else that he's taught to a conclusion as he unfolds for them and for us his return that will be, again, at the end of this age, the end of this age as we know it. And so we come to that at the end of Matthew chapter 25. Now, in an advance of his previous three parables, in which Jesus has specifically emphasized the unexpectedness of his return at the end of the age. In other words, it will come at a time when the people who are on the earth then simply will not expect it. And so he gives parables that are designed to instruct us to be ready at all times for his return. And of course, the essence of being ready is having a genuine, repentant faith in Christ that's demonstrated by a life that serves him, that loves him, and that worships him. Here, however, he's not giving an account of the anticipation of his return, but rather the actual event of his return when he descends bodily and physically from heaven to the earth. This is not a parable, as some like to describe it, It has elements of metaphor, of course. You have sheep and you have goats. But this is an actual accounting of this future event. It is a concrete account of an actual event that will take place on the earth. And it is, in many ways, the climax of human history. It's the climax of human history on this present earth. It's an event that takes place before Christ establishes his kingdom, sitting on the throne of David in fulfillment of all of the promises that the prophets anticipated regarding that kingdom. This is an event that happens just before the full expression of that kingdom here on earth. That's 
recorded for us throughout the prophets in detail, but mentioned specifically as the thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 11, something that we've looked at briefly in the past. And again, this is the kingdom that was anticipated by the prophets. Just listen to a few of those words. In Jeremiah chapter 23... He says in verse 5, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. This is a time that is coming when this one promised, this promised son of David would establish a kingdom on earth. He says in verse 6, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So it is a kingdom that will be established on the earth. It is a kingdom that has a particular focus on God's promises to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, although it will include also Gentiles who participate in it. Listen to Ezekiel 37. Just listen. In verse 24, he says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them, and they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their son and their son's sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. It says at the end of that section in verse 28, And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There's many, many more things that God revealed regarding this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom that would be ruled over by the son that was promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It would be a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom wherein the glory of God is manifest on earth through Christ. And as I mentioned, it is a kingdom and kingdom blessings that we as Gentiles get to participate in. We were indeed grafted in, and to use Paul's language in Romans 11, into these promises and these blessings of Israel. But it is indeed promises that were made to Israel. Now it is the hope of God's people then that this, for this righteous ruler to come. Indeed, for Christ to come and return and establish his kingdom on the earth. Isaiah 9 says this. We've looked at this briefly in the past. He says, Of this kingdom there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so it is the longing of God's people to experience the reality of this reign of Christ, this righteous king, because, indeed, God's people, his true people, have suffered the brunt and the burden of the unrighteousness of a world that is under the influence, dominantly, of the God of this world, even Satan. 
God's people have always experienced from an unrighteous world the injustice that comes out of hatred for God's righteous rule and his character as it's manifest in his people on the earth. And so they long to see God's justice displayed. They long to see the glory of God revealed on this present earth. And in fact, the idea of peace is something that is really in the heart of all men. In fact, world rulers throughout the history of the world have in fact enticed those who follow them with the idea that they would bring peace throughout the world. But God's people don't simply want peace as in a cessation of war. They want righteousness. They want the peace that comes with righteousness, that comes with the presence of Christ. And so what God's people long for is the presence of God, the presence of Christ with them, ruling and reigning over what is rightfully his, namely his kingdom, which is namely Everything that he created for his own glory. And I think that there's a sense, at least speaking for myself and I'm sure of you too, in which in our times this longing is increased even more as unrighteousness increases around us. If you are at least semi-clued in to the world around us, you are distressed at seeing the hostility against the name of Christ that only increases at the foolishness and the darkness and the immorality and the violence and the hatred that is increasing even in our own times. And when we see that, we know that whatever plans our politicians or rulers of nations make today, they will all fail. That peace is something that will be elusive until Christ returns, until he returns. And we have, as citizens of the kingdom and those who know Christ, within us then a certain tension because we live in an already not yet reality. We already have certain blessings of the kingdom. We already have a certain sense and a taste of the glories and of the righteousness and the salvation of that kingdom, but yet we don't yet live in an environment in which it can be fully expressed. Even in our own hearts, as Parker prayed, we feel the frustration of not yet fully being able to experience the righteousness we want to live out even in our own lives. And so we anticipate this day. We anticipate the return of Christ. And that is where Jesus points us this morning to this actual return of him as the king over all, the king over all the earth who is coming in judgment. And he is coming to prepare the world for his rule and for his reign. Now we'll be looking at this section over the next couple of weeks. This morning we'll look at verses 31 through 33 and consider namely the presentation of the king. In the following weeks we will look at the pronouncement of the king and the placement of the king. Read with me, however, verses 31 through 46, and then we'll swing back around and look at the first part more closely. Let's begin in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
You who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, or even the least you did it to me. Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they, will, they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, To the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Swing back up to verse 31 and let's consider this morning the presentation of the king. The presentation of the king. And we'll note first then that Christ the king is coming to sit on his throne. Look at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory or his glorious throne. And this is an absolutely incredible statement and an even more majestic and glorious scene. The coming of the Lord was first mentioned in verse 29 of chapter 24, if you remember. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun's going to be darkened, stars will fall from the sky, heavens will be shaken. And he says then in verse 30, the earth will mourn and they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Here in verse 31, he's not descending, but now he's actually descended all the way to the earth and he's descending to sit on the throne that is rightfully his. What a glorious day. As I mentioned at the beginning, this coming of Christ is just before the establishment of the millennial kingdom, that is, his reign on earth for a thousand years, as anticipated by the prophets and mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. This is an event that follows after the destruction of the gathered armies against him that was... Mentioned to us also in Revelation, in verse 16, or excuse me, chapter 16, he says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and of the mouth of the beast, and of the mouth of the false prophet, unclean spirits. They are spirits of the demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. In verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in his Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. 
And then in verse 19, we have the account, or chapter 19, the account of Christ returning from heaven as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, coming as a warrior, coming as a conquering king to establish his kingdom and to destroy his enemies. That has already taken place at this point when Christ is now sitting on his glorious throne. On his glorious throne. And I want to note up front, and it's important to make this distinction, that he is not talking here about the coming of his church to rapture them out of this world before the judgment. That is a different coming of the Lord. There are similarities of the account of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, it does have Christ descending. Paul mentions to us it will be with the shout or with the voice of an archangel. There will be the clouds of heaven that attend this coming. And there will be the trumpet of God. And all the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain at the time of his coming will be lifted up with him bodily and physically to join him in the air. Now, there are some similarities between that event and this event, but they are not the same. And in spite of the similarities, there are some significant differences. And I'm going to list to you at least four. More could be mentioned, but I'm going to give to you at least four differences that mark this as a different coming from Christ coming for his church at the rapture. Let me give you the first one is this. And I have borrowed these actually from... uh, Dr. Mayhew from academic dean, former academic dean out at the Master's Seminary. They are this. One, at the rapture, Christ comes in the air and returns to heaven. While at the final event of the second coming, Christ comes all the way to the earth to dwell and to reign. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ is coming. He's gathering his saints to himself. The dead in Christ rising first. Those who are alive and remain, who know Christ, who are in Christ. Then rising with them to meet the Lord in the air. And there they will forever be with the Lord. And that is as far then as the Lord comes, as is recorded for us in the rapture of the church. Whereas here in Matthew 25, that is not at all the event that is happening. Christ is coming in glory, all the way to the earth to sit on his glorious throne. Secondly, at the rapture, Christ gathers his own to himself, while here, the final event of the second coming, angels gather the elect. The angels here, implied, go out and gather the elect to himself, whereas in The rapture, it is Christ alone who is said to bring all of his own to himself in this amazing event of the resurrection by his own power calling up all who belong to him to himself in resurrected bodies. The only angel that is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that of the archangel. At the rapture, the resurrection is prominent. As has already been mentioned, while at the final event of the second coming here in our passage, there is no resurrection that is mentioned and no resurrection that is immediately in view. But that is precisely what the rapture of the church has in mind, the resurrection of his own people receiving their glorified bodies. A fourth one. 
is this, that at the rapture, there is no mention of establishing Christ's kingdom on the earth where that is the very point of his coming here. He is coming to the earth. He is sitting on his glorious throne. He is establishing a kingdom in which he will preside over as king for a thousand years before that kingdom is then delivered up to the Father that God might be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So this is a distinct event. This is not the coming of Christ at the rapture for his church. This is the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation to establish his kingdom on the earth and to execute judgment. So this is a very distinct event at the end of the age. That again is a climactic ending to this present age. It is a part of God clearing his kingdom, or Christ clearing his kingdom of everything that is unholy. He already began this process, if you'll remember, back in Revelation chapter 6, with all of the destructions that he begins to release on the world. In effect, cleansing his kingdom, cleansing his kingdom of the wicked. That is, of course, done in a final sense, as it were, in Revelation 19 when he returns, and here the work is completed clearing the earth of all that is unholy and all that is unbelieving before he establishes his kingdom on the earth. The focus here is entirely then upon this work of Christ and on his glory as the king. And this is significant as we consider this even more closely, particularly in light of the fact that Christ is only about three days from giving himself up to be crucified on the cross, to the shame and the suffering of the cross. Here he is only a few days outside of that event and far from the suffering and the weak and the humiliated Christ that they will see in a few days, he is the Christ who is returning in glory, in glory. Now notice first, at the beginning of verse 31, that he has identified himself here as the Son of Man. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, comes in his glory. And it's important that Jesus would use this title. In fact, it's one of the favorite self-designations of Christ in the gospel. It's used very rarely outside of the gospels. It's used, if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 7, 56, when Stephen being stoned looked up into heaven and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. It's used in Revelation 1.13 when John had this glorious vision of the risen Christ on the island of Patmos with eyes like the flame of fire and so forth. And he saw one like the Son of Man standing in glory. But outside of that, it's primarily a term that Jesus uses of himself in the Gospels. And there's a great deal of discussion, we've talked about this a bit in the past, about exactly what is the background of this term, what is the the meaning of this term or this title. And indeed, there really is not a great deal of emphasis prior to the coming of Christ. And Jesus himself never emphasizes it or never, excuse me, defines it. In fact, one has suggested that Jesus used this as a favorite term because he could, quote, pour his own content into it. In other words, he got to define it. He took the title to himself and gave it all of its glory in relation to himself. 
And indeed, you'll notice that Jesus does not often call himself king or really ever call himself king in the, as he's ministering. And the reason is because that term was already so loaded with so much misunderstanding as well as the term Messiah throughout his ministry. You'll remember what they wanted in John 6 to come make him king, but it was the wrong kind of king, so he didn't let them do it. So he avoided some of those terms, but the Son of Man... The Son of Man is a glorious term, speaking then of Christ and all of his majesty. All of his majesty. Here, the majesty of him when he returns to take his throne. Now, in the Old Testament, this term was used sometimes just to speak of humanity in general. Son of Man in Psalm 8.4 just refers to humanity in general. Ezekiel used it often of himself, most likely to emphasize his weakness as compared to the glory of God. But the key background really is found in Daniel chapter 7. And let me just briefly remind you of that because it relates precisely to what Christ is revealing to us here in Matthew 25. In Daniel chapter 7... He has revealing, God is through Daniel, these coming kingdoms. We've, we've mentioned this in the past, these fun, coming world kingdoms that are to dominate the world scene. These are all future to Daniel. All of them have come and gone except for that one fourth kingdom, that one that resembles the Roman Empire, the one that will arise, be the kingdom of the Antichrist at the end, to be destroyed by Christ's coming, the very coming that's mentioned for us in Matthew chapter 25. And in the midst of that revelation in Daniel chapter 7, he gives a vision. And he records for us the vision and he says in verse 9, I kept looking and thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like white snow and his hair and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. His mentions of fire flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands and thousands were attending him, and myriads of myriads of, were standing before him. The court sat, the books were open, and then he keeps looking. And he says later in verse 13 that I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. In verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed this is the son of man here anticipated by means of a vision to Daniel that has been given a kingdom by God the son of man here is clearly one who can receive a kingdom and reign on earth over nations and tribes and tongues. In other words, he is a man. And yet this son of man has attributes that go beyond that, for he is the one who reigns over God's kingdom on the earth. One equal then in sharing in the right and authority to rule with God himself. And that is the imagery in the background that Christ calls up here as he identifies himself as the Son of Man who is going to come in his glory. This is really quite amazing. In the New Testament, 
this term, outside of what was hinted at in Daniel chapter 7, is used in a variety of ways, but really there's two basic categories that it could be put in. Those references to the Son of Man that refer then to his humiliation, those things to his weakness as a man, and those that refer particularly to his exaltation, those qualities and actions of the Son of Man that display a divine glory. And we've seen that throughout the Gospel of Matthew in his humanity, or excuse me, in his deity as one who is Equal to God, he forgives sin in chapter 9, verse 6. Who forgives sin but God alone? The Son of Man can forgive sin. That's who. In chapter 12, verse 8, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. God is Lord of the Sabbath. He is ruler over the Sabbath. And so is the Son of Man, the Son of Man who is among them. He is the one who judges the world He is the one in whom his hand, all judgment has been given. As we looked before in John chapter 5. He is the father, raises the dead, gives them life. He gives the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Not even the father judges anyone, but he gives all judgment to the son. And here it is the son who is the son of man and who is executing God's judgment on the earth. And yet... As was mentioned, it also reveals him who is going to suffer. Him who is going to suffer. He says in chapter 17, just feel this contrast. Feel the distinction between one who is going to judge, one who comes in glory, one who is equal with the Father, one who forgives sin. And yet, this same one, this Son of Man, he says, is going to suffer in 1712 at their hands. He is the one who is going to suffer He's the one who's going to be put to death. Immediately, he uses this title, Son of Man, to speak of his coming in glory. And then immediately following this in chapter 26, he is the Son of Man who is to be handed over for crucifixion. He is both. He is the Son of Man whose death will be an atoning death in chapter 20, verse 18. He came to give his life as a ransom For many, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, but he will rise on the third day. Here, it is this Son of Man, then, who is going to die for his people, who is going to be rejected and killed, and yet he is going to be the one, and in fact, is the one who will return in glory. It marks him as the divine Son, as the Messiah, as the king, as the ruler and the judge over all the earth. And notice next then, as the Son of Man who comes, he's going to come in overwhelming glory. Look at this, he comes in verse 31, in his glory, and at the end of the verse of 31, to sit on his glorious throne or his throne of glory, from which he will reign over his kingdom. Incredible, incredible glory and majesty and wonder of this event. Notice it's a glory that he's going to come in and all of the angels in the middle of verse 31, all of the angels with him. And now the angels have been noted regularly as a part of his return and executors of his judgment. 
They are going to come and render judgment under his sovereign decision. Listen to, listen to a description in Jude. He says here, it was about these men, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, now this is looking forward, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here the angels, the Lord, are coming with, and with his angels to execute judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, they are dealing out retribution and judgment for those who persecuted the people of God. They're regularly seen as a part of Christ's return as he comes in his glory. He described this earlier to his disciples in Verse 27 of chapter 16, he says, The Son of Man is going to come. Here it is, in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. And the fact that he can say the glory of the Father and his own glory simply shows the majestic understanding of Christ as the Son who is equal to God, though he is a man, though he is clothed and robed in flesh. He is the one who will come with the glory of the Father and the one who will come in his own glory. It's possible that the angels here, as mentioned, will be the instruments of God to separate out, to gather and then separate the goats from the sheep and the righteous from the wicked. But here more particularly, they are mentioned as a further manifestation of his glory, of his glory. Like a king who comes with his army and all of his entourage and those who surround him. And the more that he has, the more glory that goes to the king. And so it is here. The king of kings is coming with all the angels of heaven. And it manifests to an even greater degree his glory. His glory that he is the one who is not only lord over his kingdom. He is lord over the angels. He is the ruler of all. Listen to how Hebrews describes this. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says this, Let all of the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is then a display of his glory. He who is Lord of the angels, he who is the one the angels worship, he who is the one who is coming to establish his kingdom in magnificent glory. And it is his own glory, his own glory, his glory. In verse 31, the glory here is is probably a Shekinah glory, that visible manifestation of his glory. Surely it is a glory that is attended with great light Those things that manifest a light and a glory, a blinding sense of his presence, all of which that manifest his perfections as the sun, his his perfect power, his perfect glory, his perfect authority coming to establish his perfect rule. Matter of fact, there was a little glimpse of this glory. Do you remember where? Where did the disciples get a glimpse of this glory? Three of them, if you'll remember, back at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He led Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. 
He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. It was an effulgence of light. It was a radiance of light, all of which were displaying his true glory. Even there, his nature as God. And so it is here, and yet in even more magnificent splendor and magnificent glory. It is his own glory. Peter referred to this in 2 Peter. We did not follow cleverly despised tales. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Referring to that event. There it was like a little glimpse. It was a moment and it overwhelmed them. Here it is an unveiled glory, a permanent glory that's coming and being revealed from heaven. It is Christ in all of his glory, his own glory, the glory of Christ. It is the kind of glory, if you'll remember, that made Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 want to do what? Cry out, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. It was the kind of glory that made him feel his smallness, that made him feel the sinfulness of his own heart. It was the kind of glory that John saw on the island of Patmos that, if you'll remember, made him want to fall down as a dead man. It's the kind of glory that in Revelation 1-7 will make all of the nations mourn at the sight of him, even those who pierced him, which could involve the repentance of Israel. It may, but it certainly also includes the fear of the wicked of the impending judgment that is coming on the earth. It is the glory of God. It is his own glory. It is the glory of the Father and his own glory that he shares with him. It is a majestic glory of him coming as king over all the earth. Note second there, it is not only his own glory, it is the glory that is associated with his throne. His throne of glory. And it's a throne of glory because it is his throne and he is glorious. And there it speaks of his majesty as king, as the one who is sovereign over all the earth. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And again... This is the one who will very shortly be giving himself up to the most ignoble humiliation. To give himself up in weakness to be killed and destroyed. But he is here, the glorious king who will return and sit on his throne. And will sit on his throne. So he is the son of man and he is the son of man who will come in his glory. And note here then that this glory, this throne that he will sit on is in fact the throne, as again was mentioned earlier, that is the throne promised to his father David. He is not only the son of man, look at verse 34, he is also the king. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is the promised king. He is the son of David come to rule over his kingdom. Over his kingdom. Most likely when he comes here and sits on this throne. It is a throne that is located in Jerusalem. You'll remember in anticipation of this 
day in Zechariah 14, he says this, And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half toward the south. It is a unique day that is known only to the Lord, and it's going to come with great glory. It's going to come with destruction. And here, having come and returned to the Mount of Olives, having come and returned to Jerusalem, he establishes his throne and he sits on his throne, his glorious throne. It is anticipation of the time when his disciples will rule with him as he promised them that you will sit with him. He says, when the Son of Man comes to sit on his glorious throne, he says, in the regeneration, that you also, speaking to the twelve, shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And I want to emphasize that for one reason. He's not speaking here the throne of Christ, the throne on which he rules Here is a literal throne. It's not some spiritual throne. It is a literal throne that was promised to him. It is, in fact, the throne of David. This is his coming to rule over a kingdom that was promised to David. It's not a spiritual throne. Sometimes it's said that this is, his kingdom will not come, that there is no need for him to reign for a thousand years. Why? Because Christ reigns spiritually in the heart of all believers. Well, in fact, that is true. He does. You're not a Christian if you haven't submitted your life to Christ as Lord. If he's not the authority, the dominant master in your heart, then there's question to believe whether there's genuine saving faith. So he is reigning in the hearts of his people, but that's not the kind of reign that is being discussed here. He is the one who will sit on a throne that was promised to him on the earth, over Israel, over the enemies of God, where he will remove them and rule over a kingdom in righteousness. In Hebrews 12, 2, he said to be at the right hand of the throne of God, at the throne of God. But here it is his own glorious throne, his own glorious throne that he is sitting on here. And thus the fulfillment of the promises that were given that he is returning and the king of Israel is not going to be the one simply rejected, but he is the one who will return in his own time and with great glory, with great glory. Now note here then what he does when he returns. What he does when he returns. His first act is an act of judgment, of discerning judgment. Notice as the second point. The first is that Christ comes then as king to sit on his throne. Next is that he comes to sit as king and separate the righteous from the wicked. His first act upon taking his rightful place on the throne of glory again is a purification of his kingdom by separating the righteous from the wicked. Now again, I want to make a distinction here. This is not the final throne judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment that we read of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Many people want to understand this as this final judgment, that this is the great judgment and all the people who are before him are all the people of all ages, and this is it as it's described in Revelation 20, 
11 through 15. But that is not the judgment that he's speaking of here. This is a different judgment, a distinct judgment. I don't want to overburden you with lists, but let me give you at least four reasons if you're keeping notes. Four reasons why this is not that judgment. It's helpful for us to be clear on this. First is this. The judgment at this time that Christ is describing is of those who are alive on the earth at the time of his return. There is no mention, as in Revelation 20, for example, of the sea giving up their dead, of death and Hades giving up their uh, being judged by God. Here it is those who are alive on the earth, both the righteous and the wicked are present. So the first is that it's for those alive on earth. Again, there's no mention of the resurrection. Second, Jesus is taking his place on his throne on a present rejuvenated earth. In Revelation 20, this judgment takes place after, if you remember, heaven and earth fled away from his presence. There's none of that here. Here he has come in his glory. He's sitting on his throne. And on this earth, the nations are gathered before him. That is not the judgment that takes place in Revelation 20. Thirdly, there is no mention of the book of life. There's no mention of the book of life. There is an emphasis here on those who are judged, on those who are cast out of his presence, but there is no mention of the book of life, though some of these are the redeemed. Lastly, the judgment here is addressing one's reaction to Christ's own brethren. We'll talk more about that next week. But it's addressing these to the least of my brethren. That's the basis of the judgment. That was the basis of the judgment. In other words, this is a judgment that can only be given to those who are alive on the earth after Christ's first coming. In other words, the judgment of Revelation are those who are from all time. They're not specifically judged, those who are coming, uh, being raised for final judgment from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament prior to Christ's coming. These are those who specifically were alive after the coming of Christ. So this is not the final judgment. This is not the final judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is, again, the judgment, a specific judgment, a unique judgment, a particular judgment of God, of Christ, on the earth as king before he establishes his kingdom. And let's notice this judgment. It says he will gather together all of the nations before him, or you could say in his presence. They will all be brought before him as this glorious king now sitting on his throne. Again, an incredibly majestic scene. And again, I would note, this is such a contrast to the scene that took place right before this. In Revelation 16, we read it earlier, where the kings are gathered together under the leadership of the Antichrist in their rebellion to Christ. Here, it is all of the nations gathered before the true king to give an answer to themselves before him. He is the true king. He's already destroyed the false king who tries to usurp his glory, that of the Antichrist. Here he is the true king of the nations, the true king of the world, who gathers everyone before him to experience his judgment. Now the important question here is this. Who are these nations? Who are the nations? Who are these people that are gathered before him? 
And then a second question we'll ask is, where do these people come from? Where do they come from? First, let's answer this. Who are these nations? Who are the nations that are gathered before him? Well, there's been, as I mentioned, a variety of answers. For those who understand this as the scene of final judgment, the nations would refer to all peoples of all times, of all ages, who are gathered together for the final judgment of God. Again, as mentioned in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The problems with this have already been mentioned. There's no way that this judgment could be made to fit the details of Revelation chapter 20. So it can't be that. For others, the nations are only the Gentiles who are remaining on the earth at the time of Christ's return. And the judgment is particularly against how they treated the nation of Israel. That's their judgment. In this way, those then would make a distinction between the nations here in verse 32 and the elect in verse 31 of chapter 24, defining the elect there only as the Jews and here as the Gentiles, the nations as the Gentiles. Now, the term here translated nations is one that is often translated as Gentiles, particularly in the Old Testament. You'll remember the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's, it's almost exclusively used, uh, translated as Gentiles, and it's very often done so in the Gospels and in the New Testament, but not every time. That is not a, that is not a unbridgeable definition or lexical meaning of the term. In other words, it can be used to define a group of people as it is over in 2143. Those, he says, in verse 23 of chapter, or 43 of chapter 21, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. There's our word, translated nations, uh, over in chapter 25, producing the fruit of it. It is a reference to very clearly the nation of Israel in John chapter 11, 51, and Acts 24, 17. And this exact phrase in the Greek There's some translations that appear that way. But in the Greek, this exact phrase is used only one other time in Matthew. And that's in chapter 28, verse 19, where he clearly is referring to all peoples. This gospel will go out into all of the nations. And it is the good news that went out. And the disciples were to make disciples of all the nations beginning in, if you'll remember, Jerusalem. Right? And Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So it doesn't refer here just to the Jews. It refers here then to all of the peoples who are alive at the time of Christ's return. Jew and Gentile. And again, it can't refer only to the Gentiles and particularly their treatment of the Jews because he says it's how you treated these brothers of mine, which clearly indicates those who are standing there before him and before the throne, which would be other Gentiles. No, this refers to all the peoples alive on the earth at the time of Christ's return, both Jew and Gentile. It's even possible... It's possible that it includes those specifically who make some kind of profession of faith. In other words, the professing believers at that time. In other words, it could possibly have a specific or unique reference to the slaves who had talents but failed to use them and will be exposed as being false slaves, false people of God, or the five foolish virgins who were professing believers and yet were shown to be empty and shown to be 
faults. In either case, it's more likely, however, that these are all those who are left on the earth when Christ returns. But that raises a very important question. Where then did these people come from? Where did they come from? If Christ came and he destroyed everybody when he returns, all of the wicked, clearly the wicked are among these whom he will separate. They're the goats who will go into eternal destruction. Where then did these people come from? I would suggest to you this. These are those who are left on the earth even after the destruction of Christ's return. Those who did not go up to battle with the Antichrist. Those who did not go up to battle and were not destroyed at his final return in chapter 19. Listen to this. Listen. Zechariah 14.12, referring to that event of Christ's return. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. In other words, one of the cases against understanding a millennial kingdom where Christ is reigning and ruling over those who have glorified bodies and those who are counted saved but have unglorified bodies is where they come from. Doesn't Revelation 19 clearly say that all flesh was destroyed? He does. He does. But he makes it clear that all flesh that is destroyed are all of those who came under the leadership in the army of the Antichrist against Christ who are destroyed then in the final battle. Listen to this. Verse 19 of Revelation 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him and he who sat on the horse and against his army. In other words, all flesh, the small and the great, free men and slaves and so on and so forth, are all those who gathered themselves together against Christ under the leadership of the Antichrist and are then destroyed at Christ's return. Again, that comports exactly with Zechariah 14, 12. And so there is a massive amount of humanity, or many who are still left on the earth after that destruction. And these are those who are being gathered before Christ in, Revel- in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25. And there is a great judgment here that then takes place. Let me note one final point then as we come into the Lord's table. And this is really this is really the part that we need to most be impacted with. Look at verse 32. All of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats will be on his left. Amazing and a sobering scene. And one common to that time, shepherds are known, even accounts in modern times, to separate the sheep out from the goats, or the goats better out from among the sheep. It's often explained by the fact that 
while they are herded together during the day. At night it gets very cold in that region and goats can't handle the cold as well as the sheep. And so they're separated out by the shepherd to be put into the barn or something to kept warm at night. And the sheep are left out in the field who can better handle the cold. So that's probably the imagery of separating the sheep from the goats. But here it goes, of course, far beyond that. And this is Christ as the Son of Man, the King, the Divine Shepherd, who is separating out the wicked from among his righteous. And again, this is a role that Christ assumes as God, as God, one who is equal to God in glory, in power, and in authority. In the Old Testament, it was God alone, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who was the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He is the one who was the shepherd of his people. He is the one who ruled in this way, and yet here it is the Son of Man. He is the shepherd. He is the shepherd of his people. Do you remember that was his own identification back in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Another they simply will not follow. I am the good shepherd. Here he is that same good shepherd who indeed separates out his own and his sheep. But he is the good shepherd who will also in judgment remove the wicked from among his people. From among his people. Now the background here comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. We won't go through that, but there he is, the good shepherd who comes in contrast to the wicked shepherds of the nation of Israel whom he removes. And yet he is the good shepherd who will come in the future, who separates out the fat and the lean sheep, the the leaders who are empty and uh, hypocritical, the leaders who are a destruction to his people. But he is the good shepherd will remove them and call his own sheep to himself. That is clearly the picture here that Christ comes and he stands with all of the people before him gathered to make a separation. And note here that he is not separating nations but individuals from among the nations. He's not simply saying this nation was good and this nation was good. He is separating out those who are from among the nations as individuals into the group, the righteous and the wicked. It's not a righteous nation and a wicked nation, but the righteous among the nations and the wicked among the nations. Here each one will stand on their own who are left on the earth at that time. The right hand is very often a place of honor, and so that is where... He takes his own. Again, he had already anticipated this judgment. In verse 41 of chapter 13, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. They'll gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness. He says in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. And here it is Christ who is the king and the authority who is doing that. The separation is throughout the Gospels. He constantly warned that there are the wicked among the righteous. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. He's going to separate the good fish from the bad fish. He's going to separate the tares from the wheat. And here he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. No one is caught in the middle. No one is undecided. No one is straddling the line. There are two categories that he divides all men into, particularly these who are before him now. 
And he indeed knows the heart and the life of each individual. He makes no mistake and no error in his judgment. There is no injustice in him. There is no ignorance in him. There is no lack of knowledge in him. There is no impure motive. He is the holy and the righteous king who divides perfectly those into groups of the righteous and the wicked. It is with perfect knowledge and perfect equity. There will be no excuse. No one will be put into the wrong group and moved later. And notice this is not a trial. It is a pronouncement. He is declaring those who are the righteous and those who are the wicked. It's really the final moment of separation probably pictured in verse 10 of 25 when the virgins came and the door was shut. It was final. That was it. There was no other time after that. The king is now here and the moment of decision has come. And with all the distinctions we make before men, only one is important. And that's this one. Which group is one in? Is it in the sheep, the justified and covered with Christ's blood? Or is it in the unjustified? Indeed, Paul said, we recognize no one according to the flesh. It's not a judgment made on any other qualification other than whether one is righteous or one is wicked. It's 1 John 3. By this, the children of God and the children of devil are obvious. The one who pursues righteousness is of God. The one who does not is not of God. In fact, he is of the evil one. Listen to how one commentator, and we're going to close with this and go to the Lord's table. This is how one commentator put it. It is not said that he shall put the rich on his right hand and the poor on his left, the learned and the noble on his right hand, and the unlearned and the despised on his left, but the godly on his right hand and the wicked on his left. All other divisions and subdivisions will then be abolished, but the great distinction of men into saints and sinners, sanctified and unsanctified, will remain forever, and men's eternal state will be determined by it. And so the question is, even as we come into the Lord's table, and we'll examine this more next week, but am I, or would I, if I were alive at that time, be put into the side of the sheep or the side of the goats? Do I have the demonstration of the king's life in me, the demonstration of his spirit, or do I not? And the Lord's table is, with all of its other purposes, also a time to examine ourselves so that we don't eat in an unworthy manner. And so if you are a true sheep and you have heard the voice of Christ and you follow him and you've taken his yoke upon you and there is repentance and obedience evident in your life, spend this as a time of worship and reflection. If that is in fact not not the heart that you come to, then let let the elements pass by and we would urge faith in Christ even this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you now, please, as we gather around your table, our Lord, that we would truly delight and glorify and worship you for all that you have done for us in the cross, your broken body, your spilled blood, your victory over the grave, your sending of the Spirit, and your promise of your coming return. Help us to delight in those things and be renewed in our commitment to obedience. For those who are not 
truly a part of that kingdom and maybe here this morning, convict them this morning and lead them to know you as the gentle Savior who is Lord of all. Pray this in your name. Amen.